let's be honest for a second. How many emails do you have sitting in your inbox that you haven't read yet? Well, let's reverse that thought for a moment. How many of your emails are sitting in someone else's inbox that haven't been read yet? If you want to make great connections with people via email and enjoy more engagement, you are going to want to listen to this week's episode. It is so easy to break a relationship these days um, because of digital marketing. And so it's really, really important that you have to be meaningful and thoughtful and authentic and you have to have really great content because you know email isn't social media, but your content in an email, it has to be follow-worthy. That is my guest this week, Kate Colbert, author of Think Like a Marketer and an expert in email marketing and communication. If you can fire on all three cylinders when you're communicating, you're much more likely to persuade people to do what you want them to do. But if you can at least get two of them, you're going to have pretty good results. That is three, four minutes of golden advice <laughs> that everybody should re-listen to that last five minutes again and again but and don't again. tell my clients who pay good money for that <laughs> in training and you just got right. it for free <laughs> this really is an episode you will want to be listening to again and again and be sure to listen to the end for kate's special offer on her book for rei branded listeners all that after the break This is REI Branded, the podcast all about building your real estate investing personal brand. My name is Paul Cockett, and my mission is to help you, the busy real estate investor, stand out from the crowd so that people can find you easily, want to work with you, and can't wait to refer you. Meaning that you can build a successful real estate investing business without feeling inauthentic, overwhelmed with marketing, or spending all day doing it. Because marketing is how you get their attention, but personal branding is why they choose you. But before we begin, if you're a real estate investor looking to build your business and stand out from the crowd, and you don't want to wait for all the knowledge, strategies, and how-tos to be slowly delivered to you via this podcast every week, then I invite you to apply for the REI Branded Audit. That's the process I've created that has already helped dozens of real estate investors to define and develop their personal brands and build their real estate investing businesses. This audit is a mind-focusing, eye-opening insight addressing key questions like, is your message clear and consistent? Do you stand out as being different? Are you on people's radars and inspiring them enough to reach out and want to know more? The application only takes a few minutes and the link is in the show notes. After you apply, if it seems like I can help, we'll set up an initial conversation to explain the audit in more detail and answer any questions you have. So if you're a real estate investor who's committed to building your personal brand and business this year, then I invite you to apply for the REI Branded Audit. Now, back to the show. Welcome, Kate. Thank you for joining us today from uh, sunny Wisconsin. <laughs> so, <laughs> at least I'm hoping it's it's sunny or it's getting sunny. Spring is on its way, hopefully. Uh, yeah, it's, so you know, it snows one day and then the sun comes <laughs> out the next day, but we're really close. The crocus came up yesterday, so I'm feeling uh -huh. very hopeful. Okay, fingers crossed. Yeah, we're just recording this at kind of the middle of uh, April. We connected because I heard you speaking about email. How important is email as a marketing communication tool? So I would say it's kind of a default, um, which is a blessing and a curse, um, but it's absolutely important. Um, and it depends, again, on what you're doing. So if you have the kind of business where you need to communicate to hundreds or thousands of leads to be able to get one person to get back to you or to get 10 people to get back to you, 
it can be really, really important. So, so it really is sort of, in some ways, a quantity game. Um, but I believe very, very strongly when it comes to sort of managing your list. So let me sort of start there with sort of the list, you know. So whether you're talking about a list or a pipeline, and then we can talk in a second about what a, what's a pipeline, but whether it's a list or a pipeline, um, bigger is better, but quality beats size. So bigger is better, but quality beats size. And what I mean by that is, so however your stakeholders come to you, so maybe they come to you because you serve on the board of some sort of real estate investment association. And so people know you through that and you go to all the conferences. And so there's sort of a natural sort of that, just this whole pipeline of people who, who have access to you or you have access to them. Or maybe you have an email list where people have opted in on a form on your website and you've got a couple hundred or a couple thousand or 10,000 people on that list. First of all, don't be impressed by yourself if your list is really, really big, if it's not high quality. So it has to be the right people um, who can do the right things with you and for you. So quality matters most, but obviously quantity matters too, because if nobody's listening to your message, you're really wasting your breath. So that's important. In terms of the emails um, themselves, you know, I think they're... so. There's a reason why in my book, Think Like a Marketer, so my book is really about five principles about how to create sustainable, profitable growth in any kind of business. And there are five principles um, for making decisions in that regard. Principle number one gets right at what you're asking about, Paul. Principle number one is communicate for connection and meaning, not just to transact sales. Now, some people might say, yeah, but you know, there has to be a point to your email. Well, yes, every now and then, um, there needs to be a call to action. Every now and then, you need to do something that's making your cash register ring. But people won't hand off a signed contract, won't say yes to a meeting, won't click through and hand off a credit card number, et cetera, unless they feel like you care about them, which is really what you were talking about with these videos, right? They, they want to feel connected. Do they feel some sort of real connection to you? And have you provided meaning to them? Have you given them value? Have you helped them solve a problem? Have you connected them with a resource? Have you given them three tips for something that maybe is sort of weighing on their mind? If you focus on sort of giving away some of your best information and your best advice, you communicate for connection and meaning. And by the way, sometimes that is an email like, hey, happy birthday, right? That's connection. Right. So th there's a reason why my birthday, you know, I might not get cards from my friends and family, but I'm going to get one from my, I'm going to get one from my car dealer. I'm going to get one. I'm going to get one right from my accountant and I'm going to get one from my financial planner. And they're always the first people, right, who reach out. And they're not trying to sell me anything. It's not like, oh, and by the way, like if you're thinking about trading in your car, like nobody does that. They just, hey, happy birthday. And this works in very high involvement things. I do a lot of research in the higher education space. And we ask prospective students, like really like sort of wealthy, intelligent kids um, who are like juniors in high school, what's the coolest thing a college or university has done in trying to recruit you? And they rarely talk about the expensive gifts or the really cool sort of sizzly things. They say things like, my admissions manager at such and such university called me on my birthday just to say happy birthday and ask what I was going to be doing that weekend. She didn't even remind me about like turning in my application or anything. I thought that was really cool. Right. So whether you're 17 or 47 or 67, we all care that people care about us and they want to communicate it with us. So be thinking about that. I would suggest a couple of filters. So say you're going to be writing some emails soon 
and you're thinking, what do I write about? So first of all, you know, you ought to know what you ought to be writing about because you should have some data about your list. So if you if it's been a while or forever since you sent out a quick little survey and asked them to sort of rank some topics in terms of how important they are to them, et cetera, you should do that. A little market research goes a long way. And so you should know what they care about. But if you don't, or even if you do, there are a few filters that I suggest. So when you're thinking about what should go in your email marketing, I look for what would be, and sort of these, these are my sort of shortcuts. What would be so cool? What would they freak out about? What would they find entertaining? What would they find educational? And what would make them feel good? And let me sort of break that down for you, Paul. So be thinking about as you sit down to pen that really cool email newsletter or that article that's going to go on LinkedIn, but that's also going to get distributed maybe in a different format to your email list. Ask yourself, my stakeholders would think it was so cool to get this, right? Okay. If what you're sending is not something that you think will delight them, that they think is really so cool, you're wasting their time. Okay. Or this tip is so game changing that people will freak out with gratitude if I share it with them. Right. I love that one. (laughs) Yeah. They're going to freak out with gratitude. Like, oh my God, Paul just saved the day. I've been really like, I needed to know that. Right. Right. So, I mean, you've even said things today about like, there's this app called Bonjourno. I wrote it down. I'd not heard about it. Right. So there are things like that when you're sort of offering value. Or the other litmus test for me is this is something that my email list is going to find so entertaining, so educational, or that will make them feel good, right? So educational, you're going to teach them something they need to know. So maybe it's about what's going on with interest rates and property you know, uh, costs right now, right? So, so it could be your educational information could be very, very tied to what's happening, sort of headline news. People will open that. So if, it, if something is really, really, really relevant, people will open it, especially it's very timely. But if it's educational, if it teaches them something they need to know, and or if it makes them feel good. So again, you know, what can you be sending out via email that stakeholders will think is so cool that they got it and they'll be grateful, that they will freak out with that kind of gratitude, that they will find entertaining, educational, or that will make them feel good. And if you can hit on a few of those cylinders, you're not just going to have really great open rates. You're going to have people getting back to you and engaging with you and your cash register will ring. And lots of birthday wishes as well. Lots of birthday wishes. Yeah. (laughs) It's never a bad idea. And frankly, I heard somebody say this once and I sort of almost found it offensive, but it was so honest. And she just, she says, listen, if you're connected with somebody on Facebook, especially in business, and it tells you that it's their birthday and you don't bother to send them a happy birthday, you're an idiot. And she was kind of right, right? Like even LinkedIn, if the data is in your profile when your birthday is, it will tell you that it's one of your connections' birthdays. You're kind of crazy not to at least shoot a little note, you know, happy birthday. I hope this is your favorite year yet. I, I had somebody on LinkedIn just recently. And the nice thing was they went a stage further and they said, every birthday, try to do something you've never done before. Mm. What would you do this year? Was something to that effect. Well, that made me think. And that made me think they were thinking more about me than just, oh, happy birthday, you know, default. That's a really good point, right? So somebody does something that makes you sit and ponder, linger for a moment, right? Which is something that, by the way, is not something that's not a skill we were taught in school um, as sort of how to linger in a moment. But when somebody teaches you and gives you an opportunity to really think about something, not only can that be really valuable to you, 
you may look back and remember for a while or forever who it was who got you thinking. So when I think about, so we own a publishing company uh, here as well. And when I think about what people write in their acknowledgments at the end of a book is really interesting. And it is very, very common that somebody will say, you know, hey, Susan, thank you so much for the conversation we had three years ago about X, Y, and Z, which lit the fire in me to write this book, right? So everybody who has written a book can tell you a story about the moment they decided to actually sit down and start the writing or the moment they decided to, to write a book at all. And many of them have a story about the person who did something, said something, what have you, that triggered them to do that. So if you can be a trigger for personal insight or professional insight for somebody, you'll get credit for that forever. Wonderful. You mentioned earlier, I did want to circle back pipelines. Yeah. What was the uh, what, what was it you wanted to share with that? Yeah, so pipelines are really, really tricky to create. So I used to be the director of marketing at a graduate business school, an MBA program that was a freestanding um, institution. So we didn't have undergrads. We didn't have master's degrees in engineering. It was just a business school. You came there to get your MBA. And we were very, very successful when it was very, very popular to get MBAs when corporations were paying for their employees to go back to school. And when the economy was really good and people felt pretty secure in their jobs and didn't think they might you know, be on the bubble at work if they were spending a lot of time away at school at night and doing homework. But then, then you know, 2007, 2008 happened. Um, and suddenly we were kind of in a pickle. And I, I share this example because we had no pipeline. Had we been a university with undergraduate students who were already there, who already loved us, who are living on our campus, and we could have said to them, hey, if we see you're graduating this year, you know, have you thought about getting your MBA, right? So it's this natural pipeline that could flow straight to us. They were already in the pipe, right? So what does that look like? Or how do you create? So when I think about the listeners for your podcast, how can you be creating partnerships with other organizations that, you know, maybe you're looking for a specific kinds of partners or you're looking for specific kinds of investors who has access to those people and how can you partner with them so that you can get access to their list and they get access to yours? So it's not just about a list. It's about something that sort of naturally sort of flows through. But colleges and universities are a great example. The easiest way to recruit graduate students is to have undergraduate students because then the admissions people for the undergraduate students already did the hard work and they're already there. So what can you do to basically create this flood of people who are really right outside your door already and who are already bought into your brand. And so if you do investment, maybe you've got something that you're doing that's kind of small and then you've got the really big deals. Well, how about the people who've done some sort of small work with you? How do you then sort of move them kind of upstream to keep using that water metaphor to move them sort of <laughs> upstream to some of those bigger deals? So pipelines can be important. They don't always happen naturally, but mergers and acquisitions or strategic partnerships are typically the way to make them happen. Are there any big no-nos, red flags when it comes to either email marketing or, or more generally marketing communication? Some things where you kind of go, no, don't do that. Um, <laughs> there are a lot. You know, I would say being overly salesy, you know, sort of, so when we were talking a lot about brand, right? So you have to know how to toot your own horn and be known and be seen and all those great things. But if that's all you do, 
If you're not doing anything in service to the stakeholder, but if you're just like, look at me, look at me, look at me, you know, or buy now, buy now, buy now, that B-U-Y now becomes B-Y-E now. People are like, buy, they're out, <laughs> right? So at some point, and that's the thing to remember about sort of email marketing or social media marketing. It is so easy for people to walk away. It's one click, unfollow, block unsubscribe. I mean, it is so easy to break a relationship these days because of digital marketing. And so it's really, really important that you have to be meaningful and thoughtful and authentic, and you have to have really great content because email isn't social media, but your content in an email, it has to be follow-worthy. And so there's two kinds of follow-worthy content in, in email. So I have a lot of email coming into my, I think I have 89,000 unread messages right now in my inbox. And that's okay. I also happen to you know, own a marketing company. So I'm connected with a lot of brands and a lot of our business authors. So I'm on all their lists. I will stay on your list if I think the content is valuable, even if I only, if you might send out an email every week and maybe I open one every six months. But if when I open one in that six month period, it's valuable to me, I will continue to let your stuff clutter up my inbox because I understand that the value is there when I take the time to look at it. And so every single one, because you don't know, you don't know which email they're going to finally open, right? And so they all have to be good. So I would say if you are looking to be prolific, if you're like, it's important to me that I write a blog every week or I write an email every week or what have you, be careful what you wish for, one, because that can be a heavy burden of creating all that content. And two, it has to all be good. You can't have like one great email once a year if you write 50 of them. They all 50 have to be good. Here's a little secret that I don't think I've ever admitted to anybody. Um, So really nobody unsubscribes from my email list, but I send out like one or two emails a year. Now, I happen to work in the kinds of businesses where we we have some natural pipelines and we have sort of plenty of clientele. And so... I'm not constantly trying to pull people in. And it's important to me that that people don't say goodbye. And so I'm very, very careful. And I want to make sure that what I send them out is kind of a fun surprise and is a delight, not like, oh, another email from Kate. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that is really important. But in terms of kiss of death, you know, I would say too much is too much. <laughs> you know, um, so be careful around that for sure. You know, and I think that, you know, I think that again, it's authenticity. Persuasion is really important. So one of the things I do a lot as a corporate trainer is I come into businesses and work with salespeople and help them how to be more persuasive. And I'll give you what is an entire course and I'll give it to you in like one minute. Uh, Being persuasive really comes down to kind of a three-pronged strategy that I call logos, ethos, pathos, right? So we're looking at sort of Greek and Latin root words here for logic, emotion, um, and credibility, right? So I'll give you an example that may or may not be relevant to everybody listening, but most people listening have had at least one corporate job, right, where there was an HR department. And I use this example because it just makes sense and you can figure out how to parlay this into any email or any communication, phone script, conversation at lunch, whatever. So imagine we all worked in a company together and the HR department was going to send out an email because a woman who we work with named Chloe, her husband is very sick. In fact, he's dying. And she has run out of paid time off. She has no more vacation days. She has no more sick days. And she needs to be able to spend the next couple of weeks with her husband and his final days. But she's going to not get paid for that. 
But at our company, we have a vacation donation program where if Paul has a couple of vacation days he's not going to use this year or he's willing to give up, he could donate them to Chloe and Kate could give Chloe a couple of days. So we're going to write a memo. HR is going to write a memo and ask people to donate their vacation days. We're all motivated by different things and we're all persuaded by different things, right? So the emotional appeal, logos, ethos, pathos. So let's talk about pathos. The emotional appeal, if we say, if we talk about, we mention Chloe's husband by name, we say that it's brain cancer. We talk about how sick, we say that they've been married for X number of years. We include a picture of them. We talk about their beautiful children, right? So that we're tugging on emotion. People who are persuaded by emotion are more likely, if they see that part of that email coming through, to donate some vacation days. Logic. There might be some people who don't know Chloe, don't give a crap about Chloe, maybe don't even like Chloe, right? So they don't care about this sort of emotional appeal. But what would be a logical argument? Well, a logical argument would be to say, you can't take these vacation days with you when you go. We only let you roll over X number. And last year, our average employee lost seven vacation days or whatever else. So the logical thinkers will see that in this memo and go, yeah, okay, whatever. I don't even know this woman, but yeah can't take them with me, you know, so go ahead, fine. So the logical argument will appeal to them. And then the ethos part is really sort of around credibility. So nobody wants to say yes to something, especially if it feels painful or uncomfortable or what have you, if they don't believe that the person who's asking them to do it has the credibility to do it. And so in that memo, you would say, you know, hey, I'm the head of HR. I have donated six of my own vacation days. Right. Or every member of the executive team has committed to give, you know, at least four vacation days. Or so we take a look at that credibility. And remember that credibility matters. There's a reason why a cigarette package says, you know, according to the Surgeon General, right? So the well, that's like doctor of doctors, right? So if he says, if she says, right? And so, you know, if I want you to act differently in terms of fire safety, I'm gonna tell you that, you know, well, the fire marshal said. So if you have the credibility in and of it yourself, you might not have to work hard at that, but you want to be thinking about that, but as well as what's the emotional argument, what's the logical argument. So, and by the way, you know, investors, yes, they're very logical about return on investment, right? But they're also emotional. They're also people. And I'm not just talking about making people cry or making people go, oh, you know, I'm talking about other emotions as well. And ego is an emotion. And if you can figure out how to appeal to someone's ego, pride, or their ambition in an email, you're far more likely to persuade them as well. So think about those sort of logic, you know, credibility, emotion. If you can fire on all three cylinders when you're communicating, you're much more likely to persuade people to do what you want them to do. But if you can at least get two of them, you're going to have pretty good results. That is three, four minutes of golden advice. <laughs> that. Everybody should re-listen to that last five minutes again and again but and again. don't tell my clients who pay good money for that <laughs> in training and you just got right. it for free. <laughs> right. A couple of things I wanted to pick or ask you about. The emails that you're sending, so if I only open one every six months, does that mean the subject line is vital? Yes. Because the rest of it, I don't even know what's in the email. And should you be split testing the headline? So with some, just for the listeners, with some software that you use on email marketing, you can split test the, the, the headline. So you can try two different headlines, see which one gets better reaction. And then the majority of your emails go out with that headline. Is that also important? Yeah. So A-B testing of headline. I mean, 
I'm a big fan of testing everything, but test only one variable at a time. So if you send out an email with subject line A and with a different photo than the other one. So if you've got different subject lines, different photos, different content, different... When you get different results, you'll have no idea what it was, right? right? So you have to, it's sort of like if you're a doctor, right? And you have a patient who's taking six different kinds of medications and something's causing some sort of side effect. You can't take them off of all of them because then when they get better, you have no idea which medicine you can add back in, right? So you have to do one at a time, right? So sort of one variable at a time. But yes, A-B testing of headlines, I think is really important. I happen to really like headlines that are curious. So I got one this morning from Rob Campbell who's a leadership expert and has written a couple of really fantastic books. And he used the underscore character. So, and it had little quotes around it. And the subject line, I believe was no space, 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 no service. Right. And so I was thinking, oh, like no shirts, no service, no shoes, no, no. And I'm like, is this going to be about no vaccines, no service? No, like, what is this about? And I was curious, right? So I just hit the red flag on it because it just came up right before you and I jumped on. And so I want to know what that was about. So you can be a little bit curious in your subject line, you know, telling people that it's sort of a listicle, right? You know, four, you know, four tips for blah, blah, blah. If it's a topic that's of interest, people knowing that it's sort of quick hits like that, that it's a list. People love that. Mentioning that it's a list in your subject line is really important. People do like video. There's a lot of data that shows that if you put the word video in your subject line, that that will get you a higher open rate. I usually put it in caps. So too many caps is shouty, but if you put capital V-I-D-E-O colon, and then some sort of interesting thing, you will likely get a much higher open rate than if the word video were missing. But, you know, it definitely if something's time bound. So if it's now through end of June or this week only, right? So again, you know, retailers, you know, like Old Navy, they've, they've nailed this. And so what can we learn from that about making something sound time bound. So that can be really important. Avoid exclamation points that, that gives increases the likelihood that you're going to have your email go into people's spam folders. Never, ever, ever use the word free in a subject line. You'll also end up in the spam folder. Um, so there are definitely some rules of em- thumb. Emojis? I wouldn't use them for sure. I'm pretty sure that'll throw you into too much punctuation is always a bad idea <laughs> um, in a subject line. And I happen to title style capitalization in subject lines for emails rather than lowercase. It actually just looks a little bit more professional. And when people are skimming through their emails, they're more li- it's more likely to catch their attention. Because if I sent you a personal email, it might you know be about like, you know, so great to see you yesterday. That's probably going to be lowercase or the only capital letter might be the so, you know, <laughs> but a professional one, treat this your subject line like it's the title of an article or the title of a book. Something else about so if somebody's only opening six months, I've seen advice where people say you should go and cull your list every 90 days. So if somebody hasn't opened an email in 90 days, pull them out. And some people say, send one final, I see you're not reading my emails, which personally, <laughs> I'll be honest here, personally, if I get one of those, I go, okay, no, you're right. I'm not. And I unsubscribe. So correct, it probably defeats the object of sending that email. So here's what I would say about that. I think that is, yeah, so I'm with you on this, Paul. I think that is ridiculous advice. And here's why. It costs you nothing to send out more emails. I mean, when you're talking about whether you use constant contact or whatever service you use for your mass email distribution, the cost breaks for what you're paying every month for email or, you know, in the thousands, right? So 
if you've got an extra 100 people or an extra 500 people or an extra 1,000 people on your email list, you know, first of all, you should be so lucky. And secondly, it's not costing you anything or it's costing you pennies to send to them. And so the best contact, maybe somebody who hasn't talked to you in years, but is on your list, I would say without doubt, my biggest clients, the stuff that really makes my cash register ring, the stuff that pays my mortgage around here are the clients who disappear from my life for years at a time because they're really busy running their businesses and they don't have a project that requires me. And then out of nowhere, something reminds them of me. So they see an article I post on LinkedIn about a topic totally unrelated to what they need to talk to me about. And they're like, oh my gosh, Kate, Kate's the answer to my business problem. And they reach out. Or I send an email about something totally different from what they need to talk to me about. And they're like, oh my gosh, Kate, I'm so glad you reached out. We'd love to talk to you about this project. So I would be leaving all of that money on the table if I killed them off my list. The only time you really want to cull a list is if it's your direct mail list. If you're spending a lot of money mailing and printing and putting postage on things and sending it to people and you've had no connection, you look at your database and you say, this percentage of people who are receiving direct mail from us have never, ever connected with us in any way. Now, that's tough because they might be following you on social media. But if you can't in your sort of customer database link them to any sort of connection or sales to your company, you may want to go ahead and clean up that list. I think that can be very, very smart. But your email list, I would say it's okay. (laughs) It's okay if you're sending there, unless you get really impressed, unless you have a boss who says, you know, but how high is our open rate, right? So those calling the list will give you a higher open rate, right? Because then your N equals is smaller, right? But but that's artificial success. I'm really interested in real success, um, not in impressing people with numbers about what my open rate looks like or what my click-through rate looks like. I just want to know, have I made a difference in the lives, careers, and companies that I interact with? And I'm not so impressed by the numbers. And I think you've underlined a really great point about everything you've spoken about is that continual, consistent, whatever it is you're doing, wherever you're doing it, is to keep doing it. It doesn't have to be a lot, but it just needs to be on a regular basis of some sort. One time that somebody says, oh yeah, right. Kate, yeah. Kate, Kate, I'd forgotten Kate, but I, I shouldn't have forgotten Kate. So Exactly. Don't give up on, don't give up on communicating. The only way to close a deal is to first open a door, right? I mean, and so I think people forget that, right? So you have to open the door before you can close the deal and communicating is the way you open those doors. It doesn't have to be crazy consistent. In fact, people are more likely to get really, you know, sort of tuned out to you if you send an email every week, you know, or if you write a blog post every two weeks or what have you. So it's okay to surprise them. Like I said, I don't, I don't over communicate on some channels, but, you know, but I do post a lot So like my public figure page, my Kate Colbert marketer, author, public figure page, I don't post a lot on there, but what I do is really meaningful. So I have a new book coming out later this year. And so I announced it there. So people are paying attention because I'm not filling, unlike my personal social media, I'm not filling that up with pictures of my dogs, right? So I don't talk much there. So when I do, people are like, oh, hey, Kate had an update. I haven't heard from her in a while. And it's not a bad thing to be that 
valuable resource who people haven't heard from in a while. You just don't want to be so quiet that people wonder, you know, if if you went out of business or if you're dead. So you still need to be relevant. You still need to be known and you need to be seen. You need to be out there, but you don't need to be throwing yourself into people's inboxes or mailboxes. But I will say about mailboxes, there is really, when it comes to direct response marketing, there is nothing with higher ROI than direct mail. A lot of people don't like going to the trouble to design a really cool brochure or mailer and pay somebody to print it and pay for the postage and get that out there. But, but you know, email, return on investment on email can be very, very low. Return on investment on direct mail is about 1,200%. So it is one of the most effective and it's more effective now than it was 10 years ago because less people do it and more emails are getting sent out. And just on that, because I know a lot of real estate investors do these mass postcard, particularly if they're trying to find rundown properties or right. that they can get off market, should they be really thinking about building their own direct mail list versus relying on the local post service to drop 20,000 leaflets into an area where maybe a very small fraction? Yeah. So that's a good question. So, you know, the post office um, in the US does every door direct mail, and I'm not sure if there's something similar in Canada and other markets. Yeah. Okay. So that can be a really affordable. So there's the postage costs of that are really, really low because they just drop them in every mailbox. They don't even have to figure out sort of where they're going, but it can be a lot of wasted communication. So the interesting thing in the US, for example, within every zip code, there are what are called census tracts. And you can actually, if you're working with a list vendor and you're sort of building a list or buying or renting a list from a list vendor, you can actually choose census tracts. So you can say, so when you're talking about rundown properties, you can say, I'm looking for, you know, within this county, I'm looking for properties where the average home value is less than X, but more than Y, where the average, you know, education level is high school graduate where the average. So you can actually sort of pick and choose areas, which means in the same zip code, some people will be getting the mailer and some people won't, right? Because every city, every town has sort of the wealthy side and so the poorer side. Or So you can definitely be really thoughtful about that. You don't have to go figure out how to build the list on your own. There are lots and lots of great companies that will build lists for you. But some of the ones that are the most expensive and, and seem the most impressive don't always have really great results. There's a section in my book about building and, and loving and protecting your list. And I would just say, hold your list people accountable. So if you are paying for a list and they tell you that your list will be X percent deliverable, one of the most important things you can do, and it seems cumbersome is make sure that you're sending sending it out in whatever sort of postage class will allow the undeliverables to come back to you. See, so you'll they'll stack up on your desk and you'll end up with lots of them, but then you'll under then you can count them and figure out if we did 7,000 brochures, did I get 900 of them back? And how does that compare to the deliverability rate my list vendor promised me? Because guess what? If they cannot deliver to the degree that they agreed, they will give you some of your money back and your money matters, mm-hmm. right? So you could be investing that money in something else. So so I do think that working with list vendors can be a good thing to do. I don't think that every door direct mail is a bad idea, but again, measure it. Take a look at what you invested in that mailing. Take a look at you know one month out, three months out, six months out, what kind of results you got. And the best thing to do for direct mail, people say, well, how do I measure it? It's not digital. Like, I don't know. Have a custom page. So have you know xyzrealestateinvestors.com slash and just you know something. So make sure the landing page for the lead for that 
for every mailing is different. So you know which mailers are working and which ones aren't. And then be, you know, learning from your successes, learning from your mistakes, and then just continue to refine that strategy. Good suggestion. I, I had a client that did that. And we what we did on the other side was QR codes so that we could right. track. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. So print is, is yeah, QR codes are incredibly relevant for prints. So that's a smart idea. So how has marketing communication and, and brand storytelling changed over the last few years? What have what have you seen that's uh, the, the kind of big changes? Yeah, I think there are a lot of changes that I've seen. I would say one of them is really sort of the rise of authenticity. So I think when customers or clients or stakeholders, partners of all types are really looking at a personal brand or a business brand, people used to be impressed by something that was really slick, right? And and I think today people still expect a certain amount of professionalism in marketing materials and, and whatnot, but people want to be able to connect with other people. People want to know that there's a real human being, sort of a founder behind this brand, or if you're a personal brand, they want to understand that they might actually be able to call you. You might actually return their emails. Just the other day, I sent something on a Facebook page for a brand that that I'm very interested in their services. And I was surprised to see sort of you know, their sort of spokesperson, uh, sort of the famous person associated with that, write me back immediately. And so that approachability, reachability, uh, sort of humanity, I think that authenticity is more important than it's ever been in personal branding. People and people, and people want access. So people don't want anymore to be impressed. So when you give a pitch or whatever, you say, this is what's so great about our company. The CEO comes in and makes that big pitch. No one tolerates anymore that they sign the contract because they were impressed by the CEO, but they never get to see the CEO again. And it's all junior level people executing that expensive contract. So I think that sort of access to the top, that approachability, that honesty, that authenticity is really, really important. How do you scale then if that's the the first kind of thing that people are expecting? Because I can think of programs that I've signed up for or services that I bought. And I bought it, you're exactly right. I bought it because I wanted access to the expert or or whatever. And then I am disappointed if I don't get access. Uh, how does somebody transition from that having to be there all the time and then not disappear completely that people get annoyed? Yeah, I think that is... I haven't mastered the secret of that even in my own business because, <laughs> because I always think about myself as being sort of this limited resource, right? So people come to, I own two companies, Silvertree Communications, Silvertree Publishing. But at the end of the day, while I have really great people who work with me, people hire us for access to me. And I have had to learn that there's only so much work I can take on. Otherwise, I'm going to be letting somebody down. That said, I think you make a really interesting point, Paul. There are really great brands where people feel like they have enough connection to that spokesperson or that leader that have really, really scaled. And so you think about you think about like all the brands that are sort of owned by Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> so, right. So Aviation Gin, right. Or Mint Mobile. And people sort of feel like they have some sort of relationship with Ryan because he's so out there on social media and he does the late night talk shows. And so we all feel like we know him, even though we can't pick up the phone and call him. And so I do think that there are 
proxies for actual one-to-one connection. And social media can be that proxy. So there are ways that you can be really, really personal online so that your fans or followers or clients feel like they know you so that the few times that you do swoop into a conference room with the rest of your minions who are running that project, people feel like they know you or they say, oh, but I saw your article on LinkedIn last week, or I've read your book. And so there are things like that that can help you sort of scale. But I do think that is kind of a million dollar question and it's very, very difficult to do. And you've underlined a question that kind of led from that is, does it have to be video? But you said LinkedIn article, book. So it doesn't necessarily, I think a lot of people are fearful of, oh my gosh, I don't have a face for, or I have a face for radio versus <laughs> versus TV. So uh, video is obviously one, but what other things could people be thinking about? Yeah. So I think there are a lot of things. And let me say something about video and then I'll sort of circle back to the mm-hmm. depth of that question. So So something I talk about in the book that I'm most well-known for, Think Like a Marketer, How a Shift in Mindset Can Change Everything for Your Business, there's a whole section in that book where I talk about choosing different marketing tactics and doing what I call be strategy religious and tactic agnostic, right? So being strategy religious means understanding I have this way that I want to go to market. I have this way that I want to communicate that I think is smart and strategic and proven by some numbers or maybe some market research we've done about what our clients or our stakeholders want. And here's the high-level strategy, but the tactic for how you're going to do that, whether you're doing lots of emails to them, whether you've, you've got doing you know LinkedIn articles, radio ads, whatever that looks like, you should be a little bit agnostic in that regard and do what works, even if it's uncomfortable. So I used to hate video. I used to, and it's still not my favorite thing. Um, I've always really struggled with my weight. I've always, you know, wondered, you know, do I look okay? Do I sound okay? You know, do it, you know, that whole, you know, or do I have a face for radio? <laughs> and I had somebody finally really, really push me. And they said, Kate, at the end of the day, nobody's gonna pay the kinds of fees that you're worth and gonna rush into these conversations with you and to these contracts with you if they don't have access to you, but one minute on video, one minute on a podcast, and people understand your value. They understand what they're buying. They understand your energy. They're sold. So you have to be available. You have to be willing to let people hear you talk, let's see you talk, whatever that looks like. And so I would encourage people who are uncomfortable. I was recently keynoting a conference where one of the other speakers um, has a serious chronic illness, which I do as well, in fact, and she has to wear a nasal cannula for oxygen. And she had said that she spent a lot of years not getting on stages. But here's the thing, you know, whether it's a stage at a conference, so you're going to go speak at a big real estate investors conference or whatever it is that you want to be sort of known and be seen, no one cares whether you're wearing an oxygen tank, um, whether your shirt is ironed perfectly, whether you're having a good hair day or not, there for your energy and your insights and what you can teach them, the problems you can help them solve. And so, being willing to get out there outside of your comfort zone is really vital to people's business. So in terms of what can people do other than video was your question. And so there's just so much, right? So there are so many ways that you can create interesting content. First of all, you can create videos that don't have you in them at all, right? So it's sort of text animations or what have you. You can do sort of slideshows. One of the most popular things in terms of getting a lot of sort of clicks and reactions on LinkedIn is actually 
the creating a little slideshow feature. So it's a, just a bunch of PNG files that actually rotate works really effectively. But writing articles and putting them out there on your blog, as well as syndicating them through places like LinkedIn, having great content on this, the social media platforms where your stakeholders are hanging out. So there is no one platform that's the right platform. <laughs> so Instagram might be everything for you, but it might be nothing for you. So you really need to understand where your market is hanging out. But there's just so much that you can do. And then of course, having other people talking about you really doesn't hurt. So traditional advertising is important for a lot of brands. And having the opportunity to to be um, featured on podcasts like yours is really important for a lot of brands. So for me, just getting in the hot seat um, on podcasts is one of the most important things that I do. And it's something I tested to see if it worked and if I liked it. Um, And the answers were yes and yes. So I continue to do it. So try some things out, see what works measure it, <laughs> figure out what's, you know, what's making your phone ring and then continue doing more of that. There was an example I had because there's so much available in terms of technology and people I think default to, oh, well, I have to use my phone or I have to have a video camera in the studio and lighting. And, and I got an email from somebody just the other day, but it was using the, uh, the app uh, Bonjuro. So they just, uh, and they were literally flying somewhere and they obviously had an hour to kill. And they said, okay, I've got a few hellos and to do. So they just shot quick videos. Hey, you know, Paul, it's been a while since we've connected. Hope everything's okay. I'm just heading off to this conference. Would love to know what you're doing. Literally 15 seconds. And I was impressed. I thought, oh, yep. I feel connected. And yeah, that that person has done that, you know, 30 times in that hour or whatever to 30 other people. But I felt that was one-on-one. It's even very though- smart. That's a great example, Paul. So, And what's really cool about that is not very many people are doing it yet. Right. So that's one of the sort of real tricks about connecting in really powerful ways, especially if you sell a high involvement service or a high ticket price product, you're trying to get people to become partners with you on a big investment or whatever that looks like. That one-on-one matters. A great example, the very first time I ever saw someone do that for me made a world of difference. I had been a big fangirl um, of Rory Vaden, who wrote the book, Take the Stairs, and then wrote uh, another book, um, Procrastinate on Purpose, his first book. I think they were both New York Times bestsellers. And had seen him step on big stages at places like the National Speakers Association Influence Conference. And I really, really wanted to be able to learn more from him. And so ultimately, I hired him and his team at Brand Builders Group to help me with my personal brand. So yes, branding people do hire branding people <laughs> um, because sometimes we're so busy helping our clients, we really you know, aren't focusing and we're not taking our own advice. And I decided to make a big commitment to get on an airplane and fly to Nashville to spend a couple of weeks with him doing kind of an intensive to bring my publicist with me, which was another expense. And, you know, his fees were not small. And I had met him at conferences and he'd autographed books and what have you, but he wasn't the kind of guy who was returning my emails. I didn't have access to him. And yet about three days before I got on an airplane to come see him, he stepped outside his house, was standing next to the pool, and exactly what you're saying, turned on a video camera, made a little video, talked about how much he was looking forward to meeting me, sort of what you know what we might be working on and how excited he was. And, and he knew a few things about where I lived and what have you, right? His people prepped him. And he shot me that little video. Um, it came over via email. And suddenly, every concern or misgiving I had about 
am I taking too much time, too much money, too much focus to do this? Is this worth it? All of those fears were gone. I thought, okay, I have access to the guy, right? He was the guy who, and that's, by the way, and a really important thing to be thinking about when you're working on your own personal brand is you should know how you want that sentence finished. So if you were to step up on a stage at a conference or people see you walking down the hall, you know, out somewhere and they're going to go, oh my gosh. And they say to their friends, their colleagues, that's, that's Paul, that's Kate, that's, they're, that's the guy who, that's the girl who, right? That's the person who, what is the end of that sentence? What do you want people to be saying about you? And then how do you make sure that everything that you're doing in terms of the way you present yourself to the world feeds into an authentic presentation of you being the person who. And I just want people to say he's almost as good looking as Ryan Reynolds. That's, that's there you then, go. Then, there then you I'm go. good. I'm good. There you go. You've got the good angular jaw. You've got it all going on, Paul. <laughs> and you underlined, I think, a really good point for the real estate investor listening, because one of the big challenges real estate investors face is building trust. No like trust, but trust in a big way because you're you're using or potentially investing other people's money. You got that video and it took all your concerns away. It can be as simple and as easy as that. Not saying yeah. it's necessarily right. just easy, but right. something as simple as that. And all of a sudden there's that connection and you feel safe and you feel heard or, or whatever else is going through your mind at the time. A few questions I like to ask all my guests. We mentioned Ryan Reynolds. So is that the your favorite personal <laughs> brand or do you have somebody else? So Ryan Reynolds is definitely up there in terms of a great personal brand that other people will know, right? So Canadians love him, Americans love him. There's kind of something for everyone um, with Ryan, you know. So you know, my husband likes him because he was in Deadpool. I like him because he was in the proposal, right? But he's he's a commercial success. Mint, you know, we talked about Mint Mobile, you know, Aviator Gin. He owns a well, you know, uh, football club. So, but he creates hilarious social content, and it comes back to what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, Paul. He's really, really approachable. We all feel like if we ran into Ryan Reynolds on the street and said hello, that he'd sign an autograph or take a picture with us. We have this sense, right? There's sort of no jerk factor. There, He's not aloof. He's just a down-to-earth celebrity and a nice guy. So those are the kinds of personal brands that, that I really like. Let me give you another one that most of you don't know, but I think that you should who is Jason Pfeiffer, who's the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, Pfeiffer, F-E-I-F-E-R. Jason is a really interesting guy, has an impressive job, but he's really brilliant. His content on LinkedIn is follow-worthy. If you're not following Jason Pfeiffer on LinkedIn, you should be. You should be following me too, by the way. <laughs> this is just a free commercial for Jason Pfeiffer, but he's great. But he's, he's a clear communicator. He gives away his best ideas in his posts and they're straight to the point. When I talked earlier about you know what will make people freak out with, oh my God, that's such a cool idea. I'm so grateful for that. His content is like that every single time and he's really approachable. So he was having trouble getting the right audio set up for a podcast he was recording. And he figured out that if he got on his hands and knees next to his children's bunk beds and he leaned in that the bunk bed space created kind of this cool audio. And so he had somebody take a video of him like in the bunk bed, like his little boy's bunk bed. And it was a great thing. And it one was a cool tip, practical tip for the rest of us. And it made him really approachable. This guy in jeans and a t-shirt who's the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, like he has to sort of jerry-rig stuff just the rest, the way the rest of us do. He's a real person. So yeah, he's mm. one of my favorite brands. Oh, I'm definitely going to follow him. 
he sounds right up my alley. Um, what about a favorite business book or podcast? All right. Well, I would be crazy not to you know, suggest my own. So, right. um, so I wrote a book called Think Like a Marketer, How a Shift in Mindset Can Change Everything for Your Business. Some of the ideas we talked about in this conversation are books that are uh, con- concepts that are explored in, in depth in the book, but the book goes much further than that. And I can pretty much guarantee that if you read the book and you apply some of the principles to the work that you're doing, your life will be less stressful, um, more focused, more efficient, and you're going to make more money. So you can check that out on Amazon or really anywhere books are sold. And we're going to go ahead and uh, put that on sale for listeners to the REI branded podcast. So we'll have the book um, in digital and print formats, 20% off through the end of June. Um, and in terms of a great podcast, obviously yours is awesome, but we know that the <laughs> listeners are already listening. So I would encourage folks to go check out commencementthebook.com, which is my next book for the higher education industry, um, which has a great connection to a podcast called the Ed Up Experience Podcast, which is America's number one higher education podcast. So I'm sure mm-hmm. some of your listeners might have really great connections with their alma maters, or maybe they um, teach some classes um, at a local college or university. So anybody who has a stake in the higher education industry might be interested in that book. And the podcast was actually the source of the new book. Mm. And do you have a favorite tool or resource that you're enjoying using at the moment? Uh, Right now, I'm using Descript to pull the transcripts from uh, interviews with 150 college and university presidents for that new book, um, which is entitled Commencement. So I would say Descript is sort of the tool of the moment. Right. Yeah, I I use it for the podcast editing. And I haven't used it with video yet, but uh, just for the audio editing, it's phenomenal. Yeah. I, I can't believe it's kind of slightly scary how accurate and good it is. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's fantastic. It's, it's a paid service, but it's a really affordable service for mm-hmm. what it is. It's, it's um, amazing. You know, yeah. I mean, listen, I'm the kind of gal who cut her teeth in the marketing world back in the day when we were going into studios to do this kinds of stuff, you know, going downtown Chicago, the guy who was the voice of the Pillsbury Doughboy, the he um, actually owned <laughs> owned the uh, studio I used to use all the time. But back then, like 20 years ago, we were paying like $375 an hour for access to a sound engineer. So, wow. yeah. Wow. Okay. That's almost, I think that's a year's supply of Descript, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> crazy. And do you have a favorite quote? Yeah, it's a snarky one, but really sort of fits me well. So um, Amelia Clark, who I think was in the Game of Thrones, but I've never watched, uh, said, never argue with someone whose TV is bigger than their bookshelf. I like that. I- I, I would expect that. I would expect that from you because you're in publishing. So that's. I'm pretty great. bookish, yeah, and I'm nerdy. I was an English professor at the beginning of my career. I'm a pretty nerdy girl, but I have a tendency to want to sort of write fight or have a battle of wits with strangers on social media, which never ends well. And so I always try to remind myself, you know, like Kate, never argue with somebody whose TV is bigger than their bookshelf, and that's been a good filter for me, hmm. <laughs> good litmus test. Right. Please send me a photo of your bookshelf and your TV before we communicate with each other i only so i only have one tell and i and, and so people you think but yeah but kate you probably have te- i have one television and it's not very big <laughs> so <laughs> wonderful well thank you we're going to make sure that the thank you very much for the the book offer we'll make sure that's in the show notes and how can people get hold of you what's the best way to to find you and find out more about you yeah, so I welcome your connections on LinkedIn. I'm really easy to find there, just as Kate Colbert on LinkedIn. Um, and you can learn more about me at katecolbert.com or silvertreecommunications.com. Wonderful. Kate, it's been a pleasure. A great tips, great insights, really golden golden uh, value there. Thank you very much. Uh, have yourself a brandtastic day. You too. Well, was that brandtastic? 
Did it give you some ideas and actions that you can take right now to build your business? So get to it. And if you're wondering where your real estate investing brand currently stands and some steps to make it more brandtastic, you can download our free REI brand checklist at reibranded.com forward slash checklist. That's reibranded.com forward slash checklist. Thank you for listening and have a brandtastic day. Thank you.